If you would, take your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our scripture reading before the message this morning will take place in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we are thankful that we can be here this morning and hear your word preached. Lord, I know that um, this is not my wisdom. This is from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you help each person here to be open uh, to what your word has for them. Lord, to be honest about what it says and to be courageous to change where they need to change. Lord, we just ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As we begin this morning, let me ask you a a simple question. What motivates you? What drives you to do what you do? What is it that, that, that gets you up in the morning? What is it that motivated you to be here this morning? Even as uh, the pastors we meet over here earlier and, and Pastor Nate, uh, was talking, mentioned the idea that maybe there are people here that aren't here for the right motives. What is your motive? For doing what you do. I believe that different people are motivated by different motives, obviously. Let me, let me give you an example. I'll do this on, on the negative side. We may wonder why would someone, uh, what would motivate someone to commit a crime of theft? What would motivate someone to uh, steal, let's just for the sake of this discussion say, steal food from a convenience store? What would cause you to do that? 
Well, people are motivated for, for different reasons. Some steal for the rush of adrenaline. I mean, they're, they're adrenaline uh, junkies, and, and they steal, and they're afraid, oh, I might get caught, but that, that's an exciting thing for them. Some steal just because they don't have anything else to do. And I know that sounds bad, but that's the case. Sometimes they steal because they're bored. Some steal because they can. They can get away with it. They're sitting in a store, and they reach out, and no one saw them, so they're good, and so they leave. Now, some steal to survive. They're hungry. Uh, I was at a gas station the other day, and the, the worker there said they had a, a theft earlier that day, and, and they found out it was a guy that didn't have uh, any, any money or food, and so the worker said, well, I'll buy it for you. How about that? And they steal because they have to. Though that motivation causes us to feel bad for those people, it is still wrong. Motivation determines, your motivation determines the intensity in which you do something. Why you do what you do is determined by your motives. Some of you may be familiar with this man, but there's a man by the name of Abraham Maslow. Uh, Abraham Maslow is, is, is one of the pioneers in the field of psychology. His, his work is uh, the pillars upon which much of modern psychology is based, and I, I would not agree with most of what Adam, uh, excuse me, Abraham Maslow says. But um, Abraham Maslow believed that motivation, the greatest thing that motivated you to do anything that you did, was self-actualization, or or the idea of self-awareness. Uh, uh, the, the simple idea of self-actualization is this: that uh, it can be thought of as the full realization of one's creative, intellectual, and social potential. In other words, meeting your potential, and that's what motivates most people. Now, Adam, uh, Abraham, excuse me, Maslow also explained that there was other great motivations such as physical needs. You're motivated to work so you can provide for your family. Or security. You're motivated to uh, lock your doors at night because you want to keep your family secure. Or survival. There's other motivations. And you say, why are you saying all this? Because I want, to, I want you to ask this, the question again of what motivates you? Now, long before Abraham Maslow taught, there was a guy by the name of Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul talked about motivation. In this passage that, that Pastor Will read, we're going to look at today about motivation. And what, what Paul wrote was he was his motivation for doing what he did, for being who he was, and for serving whom he served. That's what he wrote in this passage. And as we look at Paul's life, we see that his motivations for action were far above anything this world has known. They defied Maslow's theories. Because Paul was not doing what he did just to self-actualize in his own life so that he could discover who he was. He was not motivated by security. In fact, he also, in the, in, he, in the process of of doing what he was motivated to do, sometimes he pursued them and denied his own human needs. Paul often went without food and shelter. He denied his own safety needs, which Maslow said is a, is a great motivation. He denied his own safety needs. He often was beaten for what he believed, imprisoned. He denied Social needs. He became a social outcast. 
He abandoned all the recognition that the world had for him. And they, those things that, he, that the world deems as important. See, he wasn't motivated by self-actualization, by determining who he was, by finding himself. But he was motivated by actually losing himself to Jesus. We look at this passage that we're going to talk about this morning, and we're going to wrap up the series we've been talking about for a couple months now, and that is, how does the gospel impact your life? See, the gospel is the good news that, that Jesus Christ died for you. Let's take that a step back because we've talked about this a great deal, but I really want you to understand this today. The idea is this, is that every single one of us is, is damned to hell. And I do not say that as a curse word. Every single one of us is. That the moment that, that you were born, you began to go on the pathway to hell. And there is nothing, nothing any single person here can do about it. See, there's, there's religions out there in the world that tell us that if you're a good person or if that you do this, that, that you, will, you will get into heaven. And what the Bible tells us is there is nothing, nothing that you can do that's good enough to get into heaven. That is not good news. But the good news is that Jesus Christ did it for you. The good news is that God up in heaven loved every single one of you so much that he said there there is no way, there is no way that they can have salvation except a Savior be sent. And see, the Savior had to be 100% God because he had to be free from any sin, any guilt, any shame. But he had to be 100% man because, because God alone could not die for us. He had to be man because he had to suffer the way we do. He had to be tempted the way that we are. He had to experience humanity. And so God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came as a baby, who lived a life, who experienced temptation, who experienced trials, who experienced hunger, who experienced thirst, who experienced all of these things, and yet without sin so that he could die for us. Now, how does that impact your motives for why you do what you do? And specifically, what I want to talk about this morning is how does that impact how you share the gospel? See, because if the gospel is to impact us, then one of the greatest ways it should impact us is that it should cause us, as the screen says there, to boldly preach the gospel. And yet I believe this is one of the biggest weaknesses in Christianity, is Christians who are not willing to do that. And Paul begins to share with us here in this passage five things that motivated him to the ministry of the gospel. Five things that I believe should motivate every Christian as we talk about how the gospel should impact our personal evangelism. And so look at, let's look at these five things this morning. First of all, the first one is the fear of the Lord should motivate a believer to share the gospel. The fear of the Lord should motivate the believer to share the gospel. And I want, to, I want to give you, this is not in your notes, so you can add this in, but I want to give you a tagline on each one of these, or, or kind of a sentence to help you remember it. Um, and and the, to sum it up, this is what we're saying, is I do what I do because of who I serve. 
What is your motivation for why you should share the gospel with your neighbor? What is the motivation for why you should share the gospel with your coworkers? It should be because I do what I do because of who I serve. Let's look at the passage here for a moment that uh, Pastor Will read. Look at verse 11. It says, therefore. Now he's talking about the fear of the Lord. But as I've said many times, when we see a therefore, we've got to understand what is he talking about. So let's go back a little bit here. And let's look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, so so whether we are at home or away, uh, we shall make it our aim to please him. In verse 9, uh, Paul notes that he wants in everything he do, does to please God. That is, that is a huge motivation for, for Paul. But then look at verse 10. For, why does he want to please God? For, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What motivates him to please God? And the motivation we see here is because all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is, let me explain what this is. When we look at scripture, there are two uh, judgment seats mentioned. There is the judgment seat of Christ, and then there is the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment that Revelation talks about is, is when the unsaved will stand before God and they will be judged on their sin and they will then be condemned to hell. That is not, if you're here today and you're a believer, you will never face that. And so therefore, because of what Jesus Christ did, you will never be judged for your sins. So let me, you, I want you to understand that because when we talk about this judgment seat of Christ, it's, you might be like, well, it sounds like we're being judged for our sins. No, what, what is the idea of the judgment seat of Christ? The Bible tells us that is, that is something uh, different. And let, let's look through this here for a little bit. There's three aspects of this judgment seat of Christ. First of all, it is a place of reward. If you notice in that passage, it said uh, we will receive. It is the idea of a reward. Let's look at another passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. It says, if the work that anyone has built on a foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, the previous verse tells us what he means by that, and we'll get to that in a moment. But he says, if that which you do survives, then you will receive rewards. So this judgment seat of Christ is a time when God will give rewards to believers. Time or reward, depending on what it was built upon, depending on the things that we did, whether they're eternal or perishable, whether they're for God or for self, determines our reward. It's a place of reward, but it's also a place of revelation. The previous verse in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13 says this, each one's works will be manifest, will, will be revealed, will be seen. I don't know what that's going to look like. Okay, I've heard people preach before that there will be a big old screen and we'll see what we do. I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't know what it will be, but God will reveal to, to all. And really, it doesn't matter to all. It's between us and God. But God will reveal all the works that we have done. All the things that we have done for God will be revealed on that day. And it says what? They'll be manifested for the day will disclose it because it will re- be revealed by fire. The scripture talks about the idea that those things that are done for God uh, are, are the gold 
and silver and precious stones and those things that are done for self or the wood, hay, and stubble and all of our works will be thrown into a fire. And what will survive is, is those things that are done for God. And maybe, maybe a lot of works will be thrown into the fire. Maybe there's a massive heap of works and what comes down is just one or two or three or just a handful of tiny things. Or maybe it'll be all gold, silver, and precious stones. But it will be a day where it will be revealed what you did for God. It will be a day of reward. It will be a day of revelation. But it will be a day of reckoning. In, in uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 12, it says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It will be a day of reckoning where we give an account of how we live the life He gave us. How we use the resources He gave us. How we use the time, the knowledge, the education. Everything we have received... From his hand, we will give an account for. How did you use what you have? The Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. How did you use it for the glory of God? If you're here today, and I recognize almost every face in here, you've been here before, you've been here, some, and some of you many times, many, many, many times. And you have been given a lot of information. You have been given a lot of the scripture. You know what God is saying is that that is something, man, that, You've been given a lot. How did you use that resources? How did you use it? For God. And so what Paul was doing is what he says in these verses in 9 and 10. He's saying, I'm going to please God. Why? Because I know one day I am going to stand before God and give an account of what I did for Him. And he was living each day in light of that future day. You know, Paul had an interesting story. If you remember Paul's story, one day he was, he was persecuting Christians. He was doing everything he can against the cause of Christ. And, and he was on his way to do it again. And, and Jesus Christ appeared to him. And, and he was blinded. And he was in awe of the presence of God. And he said, uh, he knew what the terror of Jesus was. He knew what the terror of God was. And what Paul says in this passage is, I don't want to experience that again. And that's why he says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing all that I just said, knowing that one day I'm going to stand before the presence of God, then, then I, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It is with that day in mind that we fear God enough to share the gospel. Every one of you have been given the gospel. And what God has said to you is you have a huge responsibility not just to hold on to that gospel like a selfish person, but to give it. And what Paul said is, I understand one day I am going to stand before God and he's going to look at me and he's going to say, how did you do with what I gave you? And with that in mind, he lived in fear of God. Not a, we talked about fear last week, not a dreadful fear, but a fear that causes us to respect, a fear that motivates, a fear that, uh, that understands who God is. I think it would do us well to recapture a sense of the amazement of who God is. The wonder, the awe, the reverential fear of God's presence. In Psalms, uh, David talked about, they says, let all the earth fear the God. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe of Him. 
We talked about the fear of God last week, so I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I believe that a big reason why most believers are not motivated to share the gospel is that they do not really fear God. And what Paul said is, I know one day I'm going to stand in the presence of God, and I've already experienced the awe, the power, the majesty, the the fearful effect of God, and I I don't want to face it the same way, and so I'm going to please Him. And because of that, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to persuade people. I'm going to continue to persuade people. I'm going to continue to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a motivation for ministry, knowing that someday you and I will have to stand and give an account to God, a righteous God. And He won't... won't, Let me explain this. He won't award you based on your intentions. I am sure that majority of you and you in here, if you're a Christian, you have good intentions. Oh, I I, 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 I want to tell people about Jesus. I really, really do. Oh, I, I, I meant to. I, I, that was my plan. I don't believe that God is going to reward us on our intentions, but he's going to reward us on our actions. And Paul said, I do what I do because I know there is coming a day of reckoning. And I know the terror of the Lord, Paul said, and I am motivated by the fear of God. Then there's there's a second one that in some ways seems to be the opposite. And, and Paul says the love of Christ should motivate a believer to share the gospel. And the tagline for that is, I do what I do because of what he has done for me. I do what I do because of who I serve. But secondly, I do what I do because of what he has done for me. Look in the passage again. Look at verse 12. He says in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. There was, there was controversy going on, and there was people who were criticizing Paul. And so Paul is saying, we're not doing this to, to, to boast in ourselves. We're doing this so that you can talk to those others and, and let them know that we are, are doing everything out of a right motive and out of a right idea. And so he said, that is why we're commending ourselves there. And he goes on, he says, giving you cause to boast so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside, this, this is kind of a, a funny little phrase here. So he says, for we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul says, if we seem nuts, just put it frankly, he says, if we seem nuts, it's because we're serving God. Because it's not normal. If we seem in our right mind, it's because we're just trying to serve man. And I think a lot of times when we are talk about um, about sharing the gospel, we say, well, I don't want people to look at me funny. What Paul's saying is if I look funny, <laughs> it's because I'm doing what God wants me to do. If I'm pleasing man, then I'm just going to look normal. He goes on and he says in verse 14, though, why, why is that? For the love of Christ controls me. Some passages, uh, some translations say compel. Some say constrain. I do what I do because I know what God has done for me. 
That, that word there, uh, control, is an interesting word. It's the, sense of, uh, it's the sense of two things holding and pressing something together. And, then, and, and, and that, that, that one thing's caught in the middle of the other two things, and, and they're being moved, and it's, 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 it means to be gripped with an inner pressure. Uh, it's a word Paul used to describe how the love of Christ had gripped him, had, had controlled him. So uh, that what God had done on the cross, the love that God displayed on the cross, uh, and the knowledge of what it cost Christ, controlled him, compelled him, uh, constrained him, and it drives him to live for Christ and not for himself. Let me give you a physical illustration that we see in Scripture in, in Luke chapter 8. This is the story where the woman, remember the woman with the issue of blood and, and how she so bad wanted to be healed that, that as Jesus was walking through the crowd, and this was a massive crowd in the sense of Jesus is, is uh, inside the crowd and the crowd is moving him and, and this woman reaches out and just grabs on to the hem of his garment in the midst. I mean, how would Jesus even know except for the fact that he's God? And Jesus said in this passage, who touched me? And Peter responds like none of us did. And then Peter goes, you know, Lord, (laughs) there's a lot of people touching you. And it's the idea that they're all pressing around him and, and uh, they're moving him. You ever, you ever been in a large crowd? You ever gone to a, uh, an event where there's just a lot of people? And, and uh, let's say you're at this large event and uh, a good example would be a sporting event. The game's over and everyone starts leaving and, and everyone starts going in one direction. Imagine you start going in the one direction and then all of a sudden you go, oh, wait, I forgot something. And you turn around and start going against the crowd. You know what? It's not happening. Because the crowd is pushing you along and it's driving you. And that is the idea. That is the same way that that Paul is saying here that he is surrounded by the love of Christ and it is pushing him. It is compelling him. It is forcing him. He's saying there that the love of Christ is such a strong motivation that he can't say no to it. He can't go against it. There's no stronger motivation than coming to the understanding not only that someone loves me, but that they love me enough to die for me. Does that motivate you? It should. If I was to walk out of this service and after the service start walking out the front and not paying attention, and the truck's coming along and one of you was to come and not only jump and push me out of the way, but take the impact and, and it kills you. Do you not think that that would motivate me to want to serve your family? But more than that, Jesus Christ is saying, you should want to serve me. And Paul says in this passage, and he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls me. The amount that God loves me. And then notice what he says next. Because we have concluded this. Here's the conclusion that we have come to. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died. It's the same idea that Paul said in Galatians when he said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. But I think oftentimes we, we have not been crucified with Christ. And maybe for some of us it's just that we've heard it too much. I know for me there is sometimes... I have been saved almost 40 years. In just a couple years, it'll be 40 years. And you know what? Sometimes I forget how much God loves me. And I forget what Christ did for me. And I forget the greatness of that. And Paul is telling us in this passage in in 2 Corinthians, he's telling us in Galatians that if we really understood, because Paul understood it better than a lot of us, if we really understood the love of God and what he did for us, it would radically change our lives. And, And going and telling the gospel would not be something that we are forced into or something that we are are guilted into. It's something that we do because we can't help ourselves. This was a great motivating factor. And I I believe possibly this was the greatest motivating factor in Paul's life. Jesus died for him. And in him, Paul says, I have died to myself. Someone once said this, Jesus died our death for us that we might live his life for him. And I believe it is easy to lose the passion of that love. To lose perspective on what Jesus has done for us. To allow the love for other things to replace the passion, uh, the passion of the love that Christ builds within our hearts. Listen to what I'm about to say, and I want you to listen carefully because I think it could be misconstrued. You should not be motivated to share the gospel to lost people because you don't want them to go to hell. Let me say that again. You should not be motivated to share the gospel to lost people because you don't want them to go to hell. And that is often what we're scared into doing. We are to be motivated not by love of people, although that is a motivation, but we should be motivated by the love of God. Why is that? Because if we go and we say, you know what, my neighbor is dying and they're going to hell and I've got to tell them the gospel. And, and you go and you, and you tell them the gospel and they reject you. Because they might. Or even more than that, they, they, they badmouth you and they put you down and they mock you. You know what, if your motivation is to protect them from hell, after a while what you're going to say is, so okay, you go ahead. I tried. But if your motivation is the love of the Savior, then no matter what happens, no matter how you're put down, no matter how many times you're rejected, you say this, the love of Christ controls me. And I am going to go. And I am going to share. That was the Apostle Paul. I love I love the, the story and the Apostle Paul's life. Some of you may remember this. There's a time in Acts, about the middle of Acts, where, where Paul is going out and he's, he's, 
he's sharing the gospel, and he goes into a town called Antioch, and he goes into Antioch, and he's preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved, but, but there's also always dissenters. There's always people against him, and the, the dissenters are over here, and they don't want Paul there, and so they, they start creating this bad report about Paul, and so, and so Paul leaves, and he goes to a town called Iconium, and in Iconium, he's there, and he's preaching, and people are getting saved, and great things are happening, and, and people from Antioch come over to Iconium, the bad ones, and start raising up this bad report about Paul. And so Paul, Paul, Paul's there, and, and the people of Iconium, the leaders of Iconium, come and say, Paul, you need to get out of here. We don't want you here. And so Paul leaves, and he goes to the next city, the city of Lystra. And he's in Lystra, and he's preaching the gospel, because that's what Paul does. And he's preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved. And dissenters from Antioch and Iconium come into Lystra, and, and they begin creating a bad report about Paul. And the people of Lystra come, and the Bible tells us they take Paul and they stone him. In fact, so bad that they drag him out of the city and they drop him outside the city. And Scripture says this, and they supposed him to be dead. If you are motivated by, hey, I want to help these people get out of hell, and they stone you and leave you for dead, you're going to get up and say, I'm done with these people. I'm out of here. That's not what Paul did. The Bible tells us that while his disciples are around, they're mourning, they're, they're worried, all of a sudden Paul gets up. And you know what Scripture says? It's an interesting phrase that oftentimes we look over. It says, and Paul returned to the city. Paul, that's nuts. That was Paul. Why? Because he was so compelled by the love of God. I, I, I think of a, a hymn, uh, My Faith Looks Up to Thee, an old hymn. It says this, May rich grace impart strength to my failing heart, my seal inspired, as thou hast died for me. Oh, may my love to thee, pure, warm, and changeless, be a living fire. Paul was motivated by the love of God that was so powerfully demonstrated on the cross that nothing was going to prevent him from sharing the gospel. Paul was motivated by the fear of God. He was motivated by the love of Christ. Thirdly, being a new creation in Christ should motivate a believer to share the gospel. Or, the line there under that is, I do what I do because of what he has made me to be. Look in the text again. So we see in verse 14 through, we read verses 14 through and 15 about that. And then verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded, in other words, we don't, we don't live according to the flesh. We live according to the, the power of the love of God working through us. And then he says in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I am in Christ and he has made me. If you are today here and you have accepted the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and, and then, then here's the thing that you need to know is that it has changed you. You are now something different. Maybe you don't always feel different because you still have the flesh in you, but you are different. Scripture tells you that. And, and you are changed. What does this mean that I'm a new creation in Christ? It means that everything about me has changed. The old man is dead, crucified with Christ. He is, he is dead. The effects of the old man are still there. 
But the old man is dead. All things become new. What do we have? We receive a new mind. The Bible says that you now have the mind of Christ. You think differently. And the more and more you study the Word of God, the more and more that happens. That's why Paul tells the church in Rome to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That as I read Scripture and as I grow, what begins to happen in my mind is suddenly you think differently. I've seen that in my life at times where it's like something will happen and I'll say something and I'll like, man, that's, where did that thought come from? That's not mine. It's the Spirit of God working in you. You don't think like the rest of the world. Your thoughts, your desires, your ambitions all change. New creations think differently than old creations. They think in harmony with God. All things are from God. Everything uh, new will come from God, not from me. The more you spend time in the Word of God, the more your mind changes. And so if you're a new creation, you should have a new mind. But secondly, you should have new hands. In other words, I act differently. You cannot have a transformed mind without your actions following. You cannot have a changed mind through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, through the power of God, through the Gospel of God. You cannot have a changed mind and your actions not follow. Sometimes they don't follow as quick as we want. I understand that. But they should follow. Someone that claims to have a transformed mind, but their actions don't match their claim, we would call them a hypocrite. They're not really changed. They just want people to think they're changed. But when a real transformation takes place, when Jesus makes us a new creation, everything about us changes, and that includes our actions. We receive a new mind, we receive new hands, we receive a new home. What do I mean by that? We perceive differently. Our focus is not on this world, but it's on heaven. My destination is different. I'm not looking to this world and all it has to offer. I'm looking to heaven. Do you have a longing for heaven? Because as a new creation, you should. I'm not saying that, you know, you don't want to be here on earth. But what I am saying is, is you, you're, you're longing to be in heaven. G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher, he said, he said this, A person who is made new in Christ, and listen carefully, sees the touch of decay on all the glory that men admire. What he's saying is, is that a person who is in Christ looks and says, you know what, the value that I used to place on, on my car, it's going to decay, it's going to rot, it's going to go away. The value I used to play on my house, the same thing. The value I played, uh, placed on my job, my money, my things, my, my everything is going to decay. But what matters is my, my eternity, my home in heaven, my life with Christ. I have lost, for me personally, I have lost my admiration for the things of this world. Now, sometimes there's things that still kick in and there's like, man, that's, that would be really nice to have. My desires and my affections are, are not set on things below. Scripture tells us they shouldn't be. 
should be different. They're not set on the things that are seen and temporal, but on the things which are unseen and eternal. Because we have a new home, and so we should have a new perspective. And then finally, we should we receive a new heart. I am different. My character, my nature, my very soul has been changed. I am a new man, not only on the outside, but on the inside. And everything about me has changed. And and what I am on the inside determines how I act on the outside. Therefore, since I am a new creation on the inside, my heart is different and so that my outside follows suit. I am not only motivated by a reverential fear of God, but by the knowledge that someday I will stand and give an account. I'm not only motivated by the reality of what God has done for me, by the love that God displayed. I'm motivated by the reality that since I am made a new creation, since uh, all things have changed in my life, I cannot live without keeping who he has made me to be. I cannot live without living exactly how God wanted me to be. I do what I do because I can't help it because I'm a new creation. Fourthly, the call of Christ should motivate me, should motivate a believer to share the gospel. Or we could put it this way, I do what I do because what he has called me to be. We read verse 17, since if there's anyone, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, the, uh, behold, the new has come. And then look what it says in verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Because we are new creations, because we uh, do um, what we do now is according to God's will and not our own, we have been called to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ. What, what do we mean by this? The, the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to restore to favor. The Bible tells us that when we were in our lost condition, when we were in our unsaved condition, the Bible tells us that we were complete enemies with God. That there, we, uh, it, specifically in James, it says we are at enmity. We are at odds with God. We were, we were opposites of God. We were, we were nowhere near. We couldn't even be in the presence of God because of our sin. But when Jesus Christ came, it wasn't anything we did. It was what God did for us that he reconciled us. I, I have the privilege oftentimes of being involved in marriage counseling. And, and the idea of marriage counseling, when I sit there, I have a couple, a husband and wife, and, and, and many times they're at odds. And my responsibility is to help reconcile them. And there's times when, by the grace of God, it has happened, and there's times where it hasn't. But the idea there is to reconcile, but that's, that's exactly what... Uh, Jesus Christ did for us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. See, in marriage reconciliation, usually there's a bending on both sides. That's not the case in our reconciliation with God. In our reconciliation with God, God bent the whole way by sacrificing his son for us. So now we're, we're healed, we're restored, our relationship is right. And what this passage says then is that now it is our responsibility, the call to ministry for every Christian as a result of that, is that, as it says in verse 18, is that now he gives to us the ministry of reconciliation. It is our responsibility now to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ, the opportunity for reconciliation with a lost world that in many cases doesn't even know they're at odds with God. And it's our responsibility. 
Uh, William Booth, who was the founder of Salvation uh, uh, Army, he understood the call of Christ. And, and he, he said oftentimes people will say, uh, well, that's not my calling to go and, and tell the gospel to other people. And, and he said this, you are not called, did you say? I think you should say you have not heard the call. Then he says this, put your ear down to the Bible and hear him, and you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sins. Put your ear to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go and stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters to not to come there. And then look to Christ in his face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body in circumstances in a march to publish his mercy to the world. In other words, what he said there is if you are a new creation in Christ, and you, then you have been called by God to reconcile the world to God. Paul says, I do what I do because of whom I serve. I do what I do because of what he has done for me. I do what I do because of who I am, but I do what I do because he has called me to do it. I could look at numerous passages that tell each and every one of you here today, if you are a believer, that you have been called by God to share the gospel. And to not doing so is to neglect the call of God. And we stand as Christians, and, and we, we don't want to be pride, proudful Christians. We don't, we don't want to be gossipy Christians. We want to we you know, look down on people who are, are committing adultery, who are, are doing these sins that we think are so poor, and yet Scripture over and over and over again tells us that we are to be people who are sharing the gospel, and yet we somehow neglect that sin. We think... Well, I'm not gifted to do that. I'm not called to do that. But yet God tells us to do it. Fifth motivation for personal evangelism is the stewardship from God should motivate a believer to share the gospel. And this kind of goes along with the previous one, but I want to add to it. I do what I do because of what he has entrusted me to do. The idea of a steward is that it's, it's, I am taking care of someone else's whatever it is they gave to me. They have entrusted it to me, and it's my responsibility to do that. Look again, if you will, at this passage. Look at verse 19. Uh, He says that ministry of reconciliation, that is, in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them. And and then he says, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God reached down and says, here it is, Christians in America at First Baptist Church. Here is that message. Now it is yours. Do with it what you should. Take that message and, and, and go. See, we have the truth in a world filled with lies. Filled with the doctrine of, of demons and the wisdom of fools. And we alone as believers have been entrusted with the truth. 
Now it's our responsibility to manage the truth. This word of reconciliation as a steward of the estate that has been entrusted to us. Let me show you numerous verses where Paul talks about this in his own life, and I believe this is something that we do as well. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, On the contrary, when they saw that I, was, that I had been entrusted with the gospel, Paul understood that he had been entrusted with the gospel. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, the stewardship of God's grace, God has said to us, I entrust you with my grace. Now go and share it. It's like the story of the, of the talents. Remember that story where God gave to three different men and Two men went out and tried to multiply their talents, but the one man took his talent and he he wrapped it up and he buried it in the ground and said, I'm going to leave it there. I think that's what many of us are doing with the gospel. We're taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're like, oh, this is so incredibly precious to me. And we're burying it in the ground and we're like, "Ah, it's there. I'm taking care of it. And God's saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not multiplying it. And Paul says, I have been entrusted with this. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, he says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 4, he says, But just as you have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. What is it that God has entrusted us to do? Is it simply a message on how to be good and live a a nice life? No. Is God entrusted us with a message simply to make people happy or to make them wealthy? No. Has God entrusted us with a message on how to help people get along with one another? Or... Or how to inform people about the order of creation and and the the great things that God did create the world? No, that's a part of it, but that's not all of it. God has entrusted us with a message to save people's souls from eternity in separation from God. It It is a message that God has given us to change their eternal destiny from one of damnation to one of glory. And it is not one that we should take lightly. I know for myself that oftentimes I do. The importance of the message, the magnitude of the message, should determine the passion with which we preach. Remember what I said earlier? The motivation... The intensity of the motivation determines how passionate you are about what you do. A person who is poor and has nothing is is more driven to steal. A person who understands the magnitude of the message that God has given us is driven even more to proclaim it. What are we entrusted to do? We're entrusted to to take the good news of Jesus Christ. But whom has he entrusted it to? Has he only entrusted it to evangelists, to to pastors, to, to missionaries? No. He's entrusted it to each and every one of you who has called upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're in here and you're you're ten years old or you're ninety seven. 
God has entrusted to you the gospel. The question is, what are you going to do? The scripture makes it very clear. He has put this word of reconciliation in each of us. And and it specifically says he's made each of us uh, in verse 20. Look, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. How well are you doing on that? God did not choose the angels to preach the message for they did not experience the message of the gospel. God did not choose the beasts of the field uh, to preach the gospel for his spirit does not live in them. He chose you. He chose me. He chose fallen men and women who have experienced the gospel so that we with passion will go and proclaim the gospel to others. God is calling each and every one of you to see the lost around you. See that they're on their way to hell. And to become the evangelist that God created you to be. My goal for you today is two things. I want you to evaluate your motivation for ministry. I want you to evaluate, and really the, the, the principles I gave here today could be more than just for personal evangelism. It could be why you do what you do in any aspect of your life. It could be why you come to church. It could be why did you teach Sunday school this morning. What is your motivation? But I want you to evaluate your motivation. Why do you serve God? I want you to evaluate why do you, or if you're not, why should you proclaim the gospel to the world around you? And then the second thing I want want to do is I want you to ask God to reignite in you a passion to share the gospel. Because I am guessing that every one of us in here could be more passionate about that. And we should be. As I said, this is the end of this series, but not really, because this was really what this was, was a was an introduction to the next series. Because what we're going to do is we're going to go through that book that we gave you, and that book talks about what does it mean then. If you, if you really believe that God is telling you that your responsibility is to go and, and tell the world about Jesus Christ, if that really is uh, what you believe God has tasked you to do, then, then how do you do it? And what we're going to do is we're going to look through that book and we're going to look through Scripture and we're going to see, that's why the book is called I Am Going. Because if you are really going, then here's how you do it. Here's how you go into the world in whatever area you go into, in whatever task God has given you to take the gospel, because every single person here who is a believer has that responsibility. I encourage you, take time this week to pray, God, help me, help me to have a passion for sharing the gospel with the lost and see what God will do. Let's pray. God, I truly thank you for the example of Paul. It doesn't take much perusal of scripture to see that Paul was not a perfect man. Paul had struggles and Paul had had flaws and and issues, yet when we look at Paul, we see a guy who, man, was he passionate for you. God, right now, I'm going to ask first for myself, and sometimes I am not passionate the way I should be to share the gospel with the lost. And I know that I haven't been the best example of this 
for my church. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us as a congregation together, but starting with me. God, I pray that you help us to be willing and able to understand the the motivation for why we serve, the fear of God, the love of Christ, being a new creation, having the the responsibility, the call upon our life, and and having the stewardship to go. And I pray that you help us to go and share with the world around us. Lord, I pray that you work in the hearts and lives of those here. Lord, if there's any here that have not come to a saving knowledge, you, I pray that you help them to understand that, man, it's the best decision they could ever make. It's a life-changing decision, and I pray that you help them to do it today. God, I pray that you will work. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.